Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. All right. Anyone notice a shift, a change in energy within their body going on with that? It's, it's palpable. When we change our physical posture, we are actually able to change our emotional state. Our bodies, our minds are really, really intertwined in some of that. So, again, the research shows if you um, go into a inter- uh, job interview, you do this for two minutes before you walk in, you actually have a greater chance of landing the, a job than if you didn't do that. It's very strange. And if you stay in that way a whole way, it, it kind of might affect it in a different kind of bent. Yeah. Unless you're doing the yoga thing and then you're dialed in. Kind of a goofy way to start um, an interesting topic here tonight. We're going to talk about some grieving tonight and the process. Again, how does grieving tie into failure? Sometimes there are mistakes. Sometimes there are um, things in life. There are failures, there's mistakes, there's failings that simply cannot be undone. There's nothing that you can do to fix it. And if you believe that, if you can't do anything about it, some people, primarily men, are wired to, I gotta do something, let me fix something, let me give me a task, let me see what I can do with this. If you can't really do anything like that, sometimes it can leave you stuck in this process. And so grieving is actually the system, the process of moving through that, that state where you move from one normal, this is how life is right now, something happens and you have to get to a whole new normal. And it's that, it's that process that goes from one to the other. So that's why we're talking about grieving in here. For, for those who have made mistakes or have experienced things in their life that you just you have to endure, you can't get out of it. This is what we're going to be talking about tonight. That's why it's so important. Um, for those who were not here last week, we ended up talking about this guy, Horatio Spafford, and we talked about the story. He wrote the hymn, It Is Well, It Is Well With My Soul, and the story about how he lost his son, he lost his financial security, he lost his four daughters, um, and then was able to, in the very place where his daughters perished, able to pin um, words that say, when, um, when I've lost everything, when, when everything is gone, it is still well with my soul. There's a mindset there that I want to be able to capture. I want to be able to learn. I want to know how in the world, how in the world do you have that? So we talked about Horatio. He got the... The telegram has said, this says, saved alone. Those two words would drop me. As a father of four, I'm not so sure I would recover well from that. Come on. This is going to be fun. That's the original text. Something I want to hear, I want you to hear tonight is... The conversation tonight, there is no easy answers. There's no just system. There's no magic formula. There's no three-step process to kind of move through some of this. Um, There are no easy answers tonight at all as we move through some of this. In fact, um, the reality is there's no way to escape some pain. The act of grieving inherently is painful. 
And for some people that have a higher endurance to pain, they actually are able to move through the grieving process a little bit more naturally, a little bit easier. And for other individuals whose pain tolerance is a little bit lower, they don't have that, that high of a resilience yet, it can actually be more painful. So there's no one right way. You can't put two people up and say, well, this person's doing it right and this person's doing it wrong. It just, it, it, it doesn't work that way at all. Again, there's no formula to be able to kind of navigate through some of this. Um, instead of looking at a story that is almost 150 years old, I know for a fact, because some of you have been kind enough to tell me your stories, that even in this room right now, there are painful stories. There are, there are situations that are too difficult to handle. In my work, some of the stories that I've been exposed to over the last, let's say, 30 days is a woman whose sister ended up not feeling good, ends up getting diagnosed with cancer. Within a year, she's dead and leaves five small children under 10. That, that hurts. There's... How do you endure that? The young wife whose husband says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I'm going to choose somebody else. How do you handle that pain? How do you handle that sorrow? How do you handle that loss? What do you do with that? What do you tell the woman whose father abused her year after year after year and he refuses to take any responsibility for that whatsoever. What do you tell her? What do you tell the woman whose mother was so emotionally unstable that any legitimate need she had as a child, adolescent, teenager got, went unmet and so she's learned that nobody will meet her needs. What do you tell her? What do you tell the father whose teenage daughter looks him right in the eyes and says, I want absolutely nothing to do with you. I don't want you to be my father anymore. And as soon as physically possible, I am going to leave this house. What do you do with his grief? What do you do with his sorrow? Those are just five stories I'm sitting in proximity to. You guys have your own stories. You guys sit in your own proximity to other painful stories. There is no formula to get through this, but I do think there are some principles to help move through this process. So we're gonna look at some of those tonight. Sound okay? The false belief we are examining is, is, I can't seem to get past my past. This event, this experience, these things that I have had to go through, they now define me. They now force me to be who I am, and I can't shake that. That is a false belief because our experiences shape us, but they don't necessarily have to define us. And so we want to use them and utilize them to say, yes, I will let them shape me, but I don't want to be identified. I don't want to be, to be um, labeled as 
this event right here, this, this thing in some way. I want to be able to move past it in some way. Um, let me ask the question. If there's no formula, if there's no magic wand to take away this stuff, what do you guys think? What do you think is one or two foundational principles on helping someone move through those difficult stories that they're in proximity to? Any guesses? Affirming that the emotions are okay. Say it again. Affirming that their emotions are okay. Affirming that emotions are okay. Okay, that's a good place to start. Somewhere over here? Reaching out to others. Reaching out to others. Okay. Yep. Time. Time. Actually a good one. It's a very good one. Yes. Affirming that you'll be there no matter what. Yes. Unconditional acceptance. That no matter what part. Yep. One more time. Whenever you're down. I go around my mom and my family. You find mom and family. Family. I get my family support. Yeah. That family support. Big time. That is super important. Family support. Yes. Uh, I acknowledge God's forgiveness to myself, and then I can try to forgive myself. Acknowledging God's forgiveness, and then you forgive yourself. Sometimes it's easier to accept other people's forgiveness first before you try to impose it on yourself, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe not. Responsibility helps. Responsibility helps? Having responsibility and having responsibility for things. Yeah, not necessarily like feelings per se, but like still having expectations that people meet certain requirements. Oh, so you. Still having. Um, it communicates a certain amount of value. It does communicate a certain amount of value as you just kind of try to keep moving on and, and, and keep responsibilities going. Any other things that just come to mind? Yep. Going back to zero, kind of resetting. Give me a little bit more on that. I'm not sure I'm tracking on that one. Some kind of traumatic failure, instead of uh, letting it start to define you, take yourself back to the spot where you diverged off. Got it. So yeah, you can go back and say, okay, here's where things started to go south, and I can come back and, and just course correct and come <laughs> back on the right one. Acknowledging that it's going to take emotional energy and space to do Saying no to other things to give yourself space to go through the messy process. That's a big one. It's a very big one. Anything else? Yes. Being present with the person but not trying to fix it. Being present with the person and not trying to fix it. I love these natural segues. That's fantastic. The way I have it written down is you get to talk to people's hearts and hurts. You sit with them instead of dictating a set of behaviors. That simple act of being present, offering unconditional acceptance, offering them forgiveness and not letting it label them, hanging out with family, letting them be nearby as long as they're safe and appropriate and all those things. Yeah, that is essential. That is essential. Um, and yet, why do you think that's so hard? 
It's easy to say in here, because it's theoretical right now. Why do you think it's so hard to do on a, on a Wednesday afternoon at 2 o'clock when your world just seems heavy? Because everyone's got jobs that you need to talk to, and they're not always there. So you have to wait for their time to get yeah. your time. If you couldn't hear that, he says, everyone's got jobs, and they're not actually available when you need them there. And so you've somehow got to endure this on, on your own until 5 o'clock quitting time, and they can show up. I think once you gain their <clears throat> their trust, I guess, once you gain their trust, if you could gently give them realistic hope and say, there is hope that you'll change, and that will come when it's more painful to stay where you are than to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not you don't want to beat them with that. No. But that is a realistic hope. It is a realistic hope, absolutely. Sometimes I have to borrow your hope they just can't find their own which is a wonderful gift to give somebody by the way yes I think it's uncomfortable for both parties especially if you're not grieving to see someone in that much pain and you don't like there's nothing you can do and so you yeah. feel like you can't ever fix it and it's hard to sit in you have to tolerate your own discomfort as you're sitting in proximity to someone else's pain because again I can't fix it so I got all this energy what do I do what do I do being able to moderate your own stuff going on inside. That's fantastic. Man, you guys are good. Anything else? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to give us permission? Yeah. Hold on, hold on. My ears are getting old. Go ahead. Yeah. She said it's just pure feeling when just the cacophony of the emotions is just just trumping everything else. Then it's like, how do I do? How do I just even function? How do I get up? What do I do? Yes. Yeah, your identity gets wrapped up in it for a while, and it defines you. Even if you don't want it to, it defines you. In one way or another, you have just hit about every point we're going to be talking about tonight. So we can just close in prayer, and we can be done. Thanks for coming. Um, Let's put it into order. Let's kind of help you understand how all that plays together because, again, there's just profound wisdom. There's just profound wisdom sitting in this room. For whatever reason, I just am I'm acutely aware tonight that there are people in this room that are hungry for answers to understand the pain that they are sitting in. Okay, it might not be you, but there are people in this room right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm acutely aware of that, and so I want to honor that space. I want to honor the confusion, the questions, the frustration, the anger, the, everything else that's going on in there, and see if we can wrestle with something which is pretty difficult at times to kind of get your head wrapped around. 
in essence, the whole night we're talking about the problem of pain. Why in the world do we have to endure pain? Why in the world do we have to sit in stuff that we don't want to sit in? So let's do this first by defining actually what is the grieving process. And mine, I actually made this up so it's not scientific and it hasn't been um, peer-reviewed or anything else like that. But this is my definition of it. Really, 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 really wanting something that you can never have. I use the example if my wife was hit by a bus and killed. I'm going to really, 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 really want her back. Am I going to get my wish? I'm not doesn't happen. And so I now have to figure out how to live my life not getting something that I really want. And that, that is just a painful experience right there. But here's why. Here's why it can be so painful. Here's why it is um, so difficult because it actually points out to us that we have less control in this world than we would like. We love control. We like predictability. We like scheduling. We like to know, hey, this is what's going to be happening tomorrow and the next day and the next day and my life is predictable and I, can, and I can count on some of those things and then wham, something happens. Right now I'm wondering how Robin Williams' wife feels. For those who haven't heard, he um, passed away today. Uh, self-inflicted. Changes her life, changes his kid's life Forever. They have less control over the world than they would like. <clears throat> We're also forced into something that we may not believe we are ready for. It's the idea of the cliff. You know, when I was in high school, I used to go cliff, cliff diving, cliff jumping out at Lake Powell, um, California or wherever. And you climb up 30 feet and your knees are shaking and trembling and, you know, you got to jump because your buddy's jumping right next to you and you don't want to look like a wuss and not, not go for it. And so it takes you a couple times to do one of these things and it kind of just freaks you out. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And then finally you just got you just got to man up and go, okay? But you still have control. You have the decision. When am I going to take that step? <clears throat> Grieving is actually being pushed. Standing on that cliff thinking you're safe, thinking you're secure, and someone comes up and pushes you off. And now you have to deal with a whole new reality that you didn't expect to. Number one is the fall's pretty scary, and number two, the, the sudden stop at the end hurts. And you have to endure that pain. I jumped off a cliff one time. First time I had done it, I didn't actually know better. I jumped with my arms out when I hit the water, and the entire bottom half of my arm was bruised from slapping the water. Man, that hurts hurt for weeks after that. It's just like, that's not right. But I did it again after that, so there's wisdom for you. Being pushed off a cliff. So why in the world is the purpose of grief? Why aren't we wired? Why aren't we built to be able to say, okay, this sucks, this happens, and now I'm better. It takes me 24, 48 hours, and now I'm all better. Now I can move on. Why, don't, why, why are in the world aren't we wired that way? Any theories? Dogs, by the way, are, for the most part. Dogs live very, very much in the present. They don't worry about what they looked like 20 minutes ago or half an hour ago or a week ago. They don't care what they're going to look like in a week from now. It is very present, they're very in the moment. So they do have some grieving, but not to the extent that we do. They get, they get really 
through those things quickly. What makes us different from dogs? Yep. Don't like it reminds it. me of cooking, it reminds me of him. Yeah. There's that association between cooking and dad. Yeah. Yeah. So we get constant reminders. Yes. All the time. Yeah. I think about being a human is kind of we, we have emotion versus say a rock, like a rock is just zero. Right. Well with, with love kind of puts it in the positive, like you have to deposit and give in to things. Yeah. And it creates like a like a kind of a good side. Yeah. So that can take away swings to kind of like the negative. It's like the the, the missing of something. Yeah. You actually hit on it again right there because the purpose of grief is to confirm that something valuable was actually lost. It means that we have connected that what is there has value and worth and it isn't just flippant. It isn't just a light attachment. So when you get connected to somebody and then they disappear, whether that's through death or through choice or through circumstance, when they disappear, it's like, Yes, what, was, what that person was, what that experience was, what that thing was, actually had value. When my kids take out the trash, they don't come in crying because it's garbage. There's nothing of value there. But when they lose a toy or when they lose something else that they really, really like, they get upset about it because it has some value to them. So it is, it is good. It's actually the fact that we grieve confirms that we have the capacity to connect Without the capacity to connect, without the capacity to be influenced and to influence other people, we wouldn't grieve. We would be perpetually lonely. We'd be perpetually disconnected. It's amazing that grief and love, grief and connection are so intimately combined. It's the process of accepting, again, a new normal. I wake up every morning, my wife's there next to me. She dies of cancer. I wake up the next morning, and I expect her to be there, and she's not. That doesn't feel right. It takes some time, and then and that person is there. Or when I get used to a person not being there, and that becomes my new normal. Something important, time does not heal. So here's a, maybe a little tweak of what you said in the back. Time does not heal. Rather, it is how we use our time to grieve that helps us to heal. By the way, this often takes longer than people around us are comfortable with. Because there are individuals that they are still 10, 15, 20 years after losing somebody or having an experience that changed their life, and they still have not found that new normal yet. They just haven't made that shift. So time in itself, just by the nature of time, isn't, isn't, the, isn't the, the catch-all. It is how we use the time. What do we do during that time? We actually have control. We do have some level of control over our lives, which is refreshing. It's like, thank you, good news. I actually can make this better or worse. I have some skills and abilities to make that happen, which is, again, good news. It's also to bring attention to the fact that something is not functioning correctly. Pain 
the problem of pain, the problem of grieving. It's to say something is not right here. And this is where we get kind of, we, we expand out, we broaden our, our definition a little bit because we are designed by our Creator to be in relationship. That's what we are designed for. Whether it's relationship with human beings, whether it's relationship with our Creator, we are designed to be in relationship. And when we lose that relationship in some way or something gets in the way to hinder that relationship, then we hit pain. It's that natural thing that says, warning, warning, something's not working right here. That's the purpose of physical pain, by the way. It's the thing that says, hey, dummy, your hand's over the stove. You're going to need to move it before it is permanently damaged. Pain is temporary discomfort to prevent long-term damage. And when you learn how to listen to the pain, you're actually thankful for it. Thank you very much. I'll pull my hand back so I don't ruin my hand. I can still have the use of that. So when you are in the midst of something that is hurting, you get to say, and again, this is hard, but you get to say, I'm actually glad I'm functioning correctly. This hurts. It hurts like hell. And I'm glad that I'm functioning correctly because this should hurt. Again, whether it's loss through death or loss through betrayal or loss through circumstances, my heart is working right. I'm even going to propose... The idea that death itself, we are, we are not built for death, by the way. Did you know that? We are originally not designed to die. Death came in later on when we made mistakes, failure, and death was now introduced that says, I do not want you to stay in a broken state forever. I'm going to bring this life to an end so that you can move on to the next life and actually experience it the way I designed it to be, whole and complete and perfect. Death, for those who are working through grief because of death, death is actually designed to bring relief from a fallen, messed up, painful world. When we, when we can get our heads wrapped around that, and again, we are given hope that's why it's so important to understand where is our hope after death. Those are big questions to wrestle with, big questions to ask. But that's one of the reasons why grieving and pain is there. It's actually to, to prevent us from getting hurt long term. Questions about that? That might be actually a new concept to some people. Rebuttals, pushback, fights, I don't know. Yes, Jim. Being an okay. And as a Christian, uh, death is not normal. It's not natural. Right. It does not feel like it was meant to be. Right. So the older you get, you start to experience grief. Yeah. In the fact, and especially as a Christian, that um, death is decay. Yes. Death is a result of sin. Yes. So, I mean, if we can kind of wrap it in, 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 a, in a hopeful tone. Correct. As Christians, that you know there is a, a rebirth and restoration, but it's still a, a very difficult thing to face. Yes, it is an incredibly difficult thing to face. What about the death of a non-believer? Tell me more. My father passed away, you know, a year and a half ago. Yes. Believer. Yes. 
I mentioned there's no easy answers tonight. And your question is, <laughs> I, want to, I want to be, and I'm not, I'm not saying that to dodge a question, but is there a specific question that, what about non-believers? That's a pretty broad thing. What happens to them? What, okay, all yeah, those things. Yeah, but I mean, you phrased your saying in relation to a believer. Correct. As a grieving process. Correct. How, I, how would you grieve for a non-believer? Yes. I might push back on that one just a little bit. You might have a grief. You might experience grief because that's something, again, you really, 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 really wish you could have, and it's not something that you will ever have. But your grieving over your father will come to an end at some point, and you will not grieve over that forever. It's a temporary state, which is the nature of grieving overall. The answer I would give you is... We all have opportunity. We all have opportunity. And this goes back to the, we can't control everything that we like to control. There's a lot of people I want to just go up and shake and say, you need to make better choices in your life, okay? Around a lot of things. That doesn't work usually to the best. And so we have to learn how to sit in the idea that people make their own choices about their life and their values and their decisions. And sometimes those choices and, and, and decisions they make do bring grief to us. We grieve over those things because we have love for them, we have hope, we have desire for them, and yet still they make choices that we don't agree with. So it's wrapped up in the whole thing that we have to somehow come to terms with the idea that we don't ever get what we want. So, and there's, again, there's broader questions to this. I, I, this is a hard night. One more question, and we'll kind of move on. Yes. Um, my mom died in 1998 with six weeks' notice. Six weeks' notice. And, you know, I grieved for a long time. Yeah. I missed her terribly. Yeah. And the thing that I realize now, on, you know, as her anniversary date approaches, um, is that the grief doesn't control me anymore. Yeah. And that I miss her terribly. There are yeah. so many things in my life that she has missed out on. Yeah. My daughter's wedding, yeah. the birth of my first grandchild. You know, all those things bring up all those feelings of how much I miss my mom and would like to share those things in life with her. Right. But the grief over her loss doesn't control me anymore. You're not sitting in the acute emotional discomfort of that loss. And I still feel the grief. Yes. I still miss her. Yes. We're going to be pointing to you near the end of tonight's conversation, okay? Because that's exactly what tends to happen. That's exactly what tends to happen. Again, we're not designed for death. That's not how we were originally built. So then we have to ask the question, what are the elements of grieving? And so if your story involves some sort of active grief right now, you're going to be able to kind of plot yourself. Where do you think you're at in this process? And again, the elements of grieving, I intentionally use this word because some people use stages, and you'll see stages in here. I have that word written down too. Again, this isn't formulaic. It's, it's kind of common elements, um, just like driving as common elements. So if gas pedal, a brake pedal, a steering wheel, but there's a thousand different cars. So you, you kind of these are the elements of grieving that people go through. Number one, and I've actually combined two different models. The one that we hear normally most often is the um, Kubler-Ross 
on, on death and dying. She did a study or she sat with um, terminally ill patients. And as they approached death, what are the stages they went through? That's actually different than the grieving process. That's on death and dying. That's the dying process. That doesn't talk about the person who is the, sur- the survivor of someone who has died or who has lost something. And so there's some different models. And when you, if you want those, when I post them on my website in the next couple days, you'll be able to download the handouts. You'll be able to download all that information on diff- different models that you can kind of plug yourself into. But I can smash them together just because I got to do that today. And I'm, that's what I'm going to do. First one is actually uh, numbness and denial. This is actually um, a fantastic stage because your psyche is protecting your mind from being overwhelmed all at once. It's actually the fuse that blows. Fuses are fantastic inventions. Whoever came up with them, should we get a you know, Nobel Peace Prize? Because I've been, I rewired a 69 bug once because the whole harness had melted next to the driver's seat there. I had to rewire the whole thing because they had bypassed a fuse when they installed this big, huge monster speaker system before I bought the car and just melted the whole thing down. Fuses are designed to blow. There are intentional weaknesses in the system so that you don't have to rewire the entire car or the entire house you know exactly where the, where, the, where the weakness is and where the break is so that you can now replace it with a 39-cent piece of plastic and put it back in there and get back to functioning again. Numbness, that shutting down, that season of my brain isn't working right, I'm not working right, is actually because you're not working right. <laughs> you're not supposed to be. The front part of your melon right here is actually shut down and you're working in the limbic system. You're working in the, in the, in the rudimentary kind of all I got to do is get up and eat and breathe and go to the bathroom and sleep. That's about the only things I'm worried about right now. It keeps you alive because it is so overwhelming at times. You're unable to perform simple tasks or make simple decisions. That goes back to over here again where I'm just, I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, I have it written up here. Um, there's a sense of unreal unreality. Is that still reality or is that realty? Unreality, reality. You just actually aren't aware of what is real and what is not. What did that person just tell me? Did I have a conversation with them? I think I did, but if I did, what did I talk about? What were they saying? What was going? There's this buzzing in your ears that's just going. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, don't know what, I just don't know what's happening right now. It's your brain turned off. This stage lasts a few hours to days to sometimes even weeks. Again, there's no universal package for this, but it it usually always hits. We see it in movies all the time where it's the knock on the door. The parents get the knock on the door at 2 in the morning and there's a police officer standing, standing on the doorstep and the, door, the mom opens the door and we have bad news. Mrs. Johnson, I'm very, very sorry to tell you, but your, your teenage daughter was killed in a, in a car accident. And the mother falls to her knees and goes, no, 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 it's not true, it's not true. She's upstairs sleeping, she's up there sleeping. Runs upstairs, the camera follows her. She opens the door and sure enough, daughter had snuck out and gone and it's that I can't believe this is true it's the denial it's the the numbness 
that can last sometimes for just minutes or hours to sometimes it, it actually blows a bigger fuse and you actually have a little disconnect from reality in a, in a kind of almost a mental health crisis sort of way. It's like, who am I and where am I at? What you need in this stage or in this moment is a couple things that are just really, really important. Primarily, family and friends. You need to have people who are actually going to be around you, who can help you function, who can remind you, here's your shoes, you need to put them on today. Here's your, I'll, I'll wash your laundry for you. People who will make decisions for you. I put it here, um, bottled water and toilet paper. Um, I have a, a friend whose husband committed suicide. And when, when her circle, when her sphere found out about that, she woke up the next morning and on her porch was a large thing of toilet paper from Costco and a large thing of bottled water with a note that said, drink water. Because she, she just would have forgotten that. It's just such a crisis state. And you can, who remembers to buy toilet paper when your world has come to an end? Talk about people who know, know the process well. What a fantastic gift. Toilet paper and bottled water for someone in crisis. Nothing says I love you like toilet paper and bottled water. Literally. Literally. You have the suffering stage next. And inside that one, there's actually a yearning and an anger stage. There's a stage that is the shock begins to wear off, and that's when the pain begins. That's when the circuit breakers aren't popping anymore, and you're just feeling those surges of adrenaline. You're feeling that loss. You are acutely aware that your world is never going to be the same again. And it hurts, and it hurts, and it hurts, and it hurts. It's a time of emotional upheaval. Nothing, nothing, nothing is, is off the table. It is all fair game. This is when the emotional pain can actually cause physical pain. It is your body hurts because of sorrow. It is, it is overwhelming. It is somatic. Again, this is why doing this changes our, our emotional state because our emotions can affect our bodies. This is why we have ulcers. This is why we have all other things in our bodies. We're connected in that way. Some of the physical symptoms you actually experience, um, loss of appetite and weight. It's not uncommon. Again, I have another friend who um, he lost about 30 pounds in the midst of his grieving. Dropped 30 pounds. This is when people are trying to get you to eat. This is when a lot of potluck things or casserole things show up on your door and they just get thrown away because you, your body is not in, in digestion mode. It is in shutdown mode. It is in survival mode. Chest pains. Um, a lot of people in the midst of grief end up in the hospital because they think they're having a heart attack. Insomnia, which is actually almost cruel because it's like I'm in so much pain and I just want to shut off. I just want to turn my brain off. And so you go to bed and you lay there with no distractions and you actually feel the pain sometimes even more acutely. It's like this hurts even more. And so you get up and you're wandering around the house or you try to distract yourself in some way. So nighttime can actually be the worst time for people who are 
in the early stages of this, of this season. It's just painful. And then extreme fatigue. Well, if you're not sleeping and you're not eating, you're not feeling your body, you're not refreshing your body, then you just you have no energy to do anything else. Some of the emotional symptoms. Uh, sadness. Anger. Guilt. Anxiety. Restlessness. And even agitation. The anxiety is connected to I don't like this pain and I got to do something to fix it. Just give me something to do. There is no Tylenol for this. You have to learn how to move through it. The guilt, again, the guilt, we often go back to blaming ourselves. If only I had done this, or if only I had said that, or if only I had reacted in a different way, then I would not be in this situation. It's magical thinking. It is, I got to fix this in some way and somehow. Yes? Yes, because addictive behavior is about what? Trying to cover something. Mood alteration. That's what, so she said that this is when you're really susceptible if you have some sort of addictive personality or addictive behavior. This is it right here. This is a really good stage to typically act out. The hallmark of this stage, rapid mood swings. Again, it's about mood regulation. I got to do something to change my mood. So I'm going to act out, I'm going to use, I'm going to behave in some way. Intense emotions and a loss of control over your psyche. It's just like my brain isn't working, my, my, I, I just don't even know who I am anymore. I'm, I'm, what do I do? Who am I? Again, for those in the room who have experienced some sort of profound loss, you might be somewhere in this stage. You might be beyond this. This might sound familiar. If you have experienced some of those things, my hope is that by hearing this, you're going to realize, oh my gosh, I'm not actually crazy. I'm not actually losing my mind. This is just normal. This is what having my world completely rocked by being pushed off the cliff feels like. And you will yearn. This is a word we don't use often in our vocabulary right now. But yearning. It's not just wanting. It's not just hoping. It's not desiring. It's a yearning. It's a visceral down there. It is, I want this. And I'm never going to get it. Why? Why? Why can't I have it? Yearning. How's everyone doing? Everyone breathing okay? Do we need to stand up and do this again? No, we don't need to do that. Okay. There may be anger. There may be regrets. Goes back to that bargaining phase again of, if only I would have done this. If only I would have said something. I regret not doing something. Then there's emotional despair. So we go from kind of the yearning and anger. You move into this it's just a profound period of sadness, silence, and actually withdrawal from families. It's an intentional withdrawal. It's a, mo it's a time, it's a season that says, 
you guys, it's nice to have you around, but you're not actually fixing this, and I'm such a mess, and, and this is so overwhelming, and nothing I'm doing is going to fix this anyway, so I'm going to go, and I'm just going to sit by myself for a while. It's not a bad phase. It's actually necessary in this process. It's okay to do that. We don't want to get stuck there. But it's okay to take a season where you just say, I need to get away. I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to get used to my own sadness, my own sorrow. This is stage two, section B, if you want to call that again. I mashed these together. I took a five-stage model and smashed it into a three-stage model. So it's the elements of grief. It'll be typed up for you if you want to download it and have it actually make sense. Um, by the way, this is the stage when friends have probably gone back to their business of living their lives because it is appropriate that they don't get stuck in your grief because it's not their grief. Their world hasn't been changed yet. Your world has. And so a lot of people actually feel abandoned in here. They're going, I'm still hurting like hell. I'm still dying here. My world can't function. And you're going camping? This is where accusations come in of, you don't care about me, you don't love me, you're bad friends. And that anger thing kind of cycles back around and you send off that email that says, screw you. And you lose friends. <laughs> this is the guy who goes camping, so give them some grace. Hopefully they're also gracious enough to go, this is the anger talking, this is the sadness, this is the grief talking, and they'll come over with bottled water and toilet paper as a peace offering, and they're just going to say, we get it, stop being a jerk, we still love you, but we got to go to work. And they'll do that kindly, they'll do that respectfully, they'll do that directly, a lot of messiness happens right here, interpersonally, relationally. It's just as a, it's a messy stage. Um, you have a f the same friends who are going camping and getting on with their life. If they have low empathy levels, then they are looking at you, going, "How come you're not over this yet? It's been two weeks. What? Two weeks? I don't have to get on with my life yet." In fact, I would argue that there's a biological time frame for grieving major losses in your life. If you break your arm, how long does it take to heal a broken arm, heal the bone? How long? Six to eight weeks, that's right. Can you look at your arm and go, heal faster, heal faster, heal faster, heal faster, heal faster? Does that typically work? Typically not. Depends upon your paradigm and perspective of kind of the world, but typically not. So what do you do with a broken arm? They put it in a cast. Does the cast actually heal the broken arm? The cast stabilizes it. It is a framework. It is a structure that keeps you from doing this with your broken arm. Because what would happen if you do this with your broken arm? It's going to be a lot broken a lot longer than six to eight weeks because it, it, it doesn't have that stability and the bone keeps... I broke this wrist actually when I was a kid. Both bones straight through. I saw the x-ray. It looked like that. Whew. Six years old. Busted my wrist. Broke it again in junior high. Twice. Because I cut the cast off early 
I got tired of it and then fell on it and broke it through the rest of the way. So I didn't give, I didn't give enough time. I tried to get over it faster than it was actually healed up. And I ended up being in a cast twice as long because I caused more damage because I tried to rush it. That's actually what happens with grieving because we can try to rush it and we actually cause more damage rather than giving ourselves time to move through it. So there's a biological time to heal your broken arm, six to eight weeks. What is the biological time? It's actually built into our, our somatic physical bodies. How long do you think it takes to get over a profound grief, a profound loss? Anyone have a guess? He says lifetime. Five years. This is fun. We just thought numbers because it's fun to do that. We got a two in the back. Do I hear three? Anyone who kind of cut the middle? Three, five, nine? Typically, again, according to smarter people than me, studies are showing it's 18 months to two years before your body, before your, just your life starts to function again, and you move from that, I expect life to be this way, to I now understand life's going to be this way, from one normal to another normal. 18 months to two years. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot rush that. Yep. Now, is that assuming you're not medicating with alcohol or drugs? Medicating with alcohol and drugs is like doing this with a broken arm because you're trying to numb out and you're not letting yourself heal and move through the grief and move through the loss, and it actually will slow it down, typically. Unless you stay medicated for the rest of your life, and then you're doing good. Again, you're left alone to cope with this stuff. What you need in this stage when you're sending off emails and you're getting mad at everybody, you need support. This is typically when it's appropriate to go find help that is specific to your situation. So if you have lost a spouse or lost a loved one to death, you go actually go to a grief support group. It's people who are in the same situation who look at you and they can go, oh yeah, I recognize that. You're welcome here because we're in that same stage. If you've had a betrayal in some way, if, if, if you've had a spouse leave you or a relationship fall apart and there's been some sort of betrayal in that, you can actually go and get support through divorce support groups or, or things like that. There's many, many kind of professional experiences that are designed <clears throat> by nature to just say we know what to do with this messiness and it actually takes some of the burden off your friends because a lot of them don't know what to do. They're good natured, they're good hearted, but they just sometimes miss the mark on some of that. So finding this kind of support is just like putting a cast. It's gonna limit your mobility, it's gonna move, it's gonna limit your choices, but that support keeps it stable so that your arm actually gets better and you can function again later on. It's important not to grieve alone long term. Again, this is a season when you kind of pull away. And again, that's okay. But you don't stay there forever. You have to come back. You have to come back and say, here I am again. I come back to work. I come back and hang out with my friends. Even if you come and you're the quiet person who's sitting, sitting on the stool at the, end of the, at the end of the bar and you're just quiet, you're there with them. You're moving back to that. Stage three. So once you get kind of through those two stages in the middle there, uh, we get to kind of a recovery stage where your world starts to be changed a little bit different. It starts to get reorganized. In this stage, it's not the end of pain, 
but it's the ability to function with the pain. It's amazing the resiliency that our bodies have. Because if you are hurting long enough, you get used to it. And you can actually just start to function and breathe and move and do some of the normal things. It might not be your choice, but you don't stay limited. You don't stay stuck in that, in that helplessness or hopeless stage. And so you learn how to function with the pain. Here's a little caveat in some of that as well. Some people actually get addicted to the pain. They go, this is my new normal, being in pain. And so I'm going to do everything I can to stay in pain because... Well, sometimes the mentality is, that person screwed me, I'm going to screw them by showing them how hurt I am, and if I get over it, if I get better, it somehow releases them of the responsibility of that. And so we have the idea of, I'm going to hurt myself to hurt them. It's a bad strategy. Don't do that. It just doesn't work. It keeps you stuck there. Give yourself permission to get better. Let them be them. It's not the end of pain. I'm sorry, say again? Can you get stuck in the pain to honor the person? Fantastic question. What do you think? Can you get stuck in the pain to honor the person? Got some head nodding. Why? I'm not sure, but I know why, how I got over my grandpa. Yeah. Okay. It took me seven years to get over Get over seven years. Like yeah. But after I got over it, it, it was like no matter how I feel, I could still ask my grandpa whatever I wanted. Right. And it would come to me in an answer, either in a dream or in, it would just pop in my yeah. head. Yeah. Like he would have said it. Yeah. Like he told me when I got hurt, he told me, he said, Pain will help you remember that you're alive sometimes. And sometimes wow. it'll remind you that you're not dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good story. Yeah. Speaking of one who's had this stuff in a place like that, an underlying cause of it would be guilt that by not being in that place, I am in a way forsaking them and so it actually creates even if I'm not aware of it feelings of guilt that I am now forsaking them and so in order to feel for them that way is actually a way to kind of cover up my own pain of guilt yeah but kind of projecting that with almost a uh, codependency on it in a way so if you get better it's almost forsaking that person and it, you'll become codependent with their need for something even though they're not here anymore I, I'm tracking with what you said. Staying stuck in the pain is a way of honoring the person. That can happen as well. So let's always put it back into a common sense, relational kind of conversation. I want you to like me and I want to like you. Okay? We want to have this very mutually edifying experience. For you to like me better, I'm going to hurt myself in some way. Does that typically work? I mean, if the person's really, really unhealthy and there's all sorts of nasty codependency stuff going on, like you're saying, then yeah, that might play into it. But in, in general, overall, hurting ourselves does not endear ourselves to somebody else. 
And so we can even move into that status when we've lost somebody, which is by us being in pain, it isn't naturally forsaking them. It could potentially, if they were able to respond in some way, it might disappoint them. We have permission to move on. We have permission to feel better because that's how we're designed to be. Yeah. So I was thinking, like, what, if, what happens when the first two stages push together? And, like, you go into the second stage and you still are under, like, a new personality and a new persona and you don't yep. really understand, you're not really here with people or you're still stuck in that, like, is this really happening stage? Yep. And then you move into the... I need, to, I need a break from everybody and I need to have my own space and you fall and then you it gets you cause more wreckage yeah you lose yourself when you're a parent and you cause more wreckage and you have children and um, it's harder to get to that third stage yeah and, and so I can see really how because when I look back on my life I think that's like the biggest failure I, in, in my in my eyes that I've done in my life is how I handled my father's death and um and I, and I identified, like, wow, I wasn't going crazy. Those things really happened to me. But, like, those two first stages really came together, and it was really hard for me to see my way out of that. These aren't linear stages. It means you don't move from one and then finally wake up and go, I am now done with stage one. Thank you very much. I gladly move on to stage two. Send out an email. By the way, I'm now in stage two, everybody. Thank you very much. If you can just buckle your seats. Here we go. Here we go. It isn't that, that delineated, you know that. It's all mashed together already. And again, some people move through it in a little bit more coherent stage because they have a stronger resiliency and sometimes people's resiliency is just a little bit weaker in that area and so they get lost in it for a little bit, for a little bit longer. It's not right or wrong, it just is what it is. And This is when we get to recognize it when we're in the proximity to someone else's pain and we can go, they still need some help even though it's been a little bit longer and, and I don't know what to do with them but I do know there's this guy who can help them over here, you know, he's a counselor, he's a grief counselor, I can drive them to the, the grief share, I can drive them to other things like that, I can start to equip them to make some of those decisions. But that requires healthy friends, healthy family, those kinds of things. So there's several ways to move through it, ideally. Sometimes we just don't have those resources and we make those mistakes. We lose, we have other things to grieve over. Choices we make and failings and all those things. Yeah, I just have, I just have like an understanding. I mean, I knew about God, but I didn't have an understanding of God and a yeah. relationship with him. And I, don't, I feel like if I did, then I would, I would have been more equipped yeah. to deal with it better. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that through the path of losing my father and all the things that I went through, that that's how I found God. And found yeah. it. So it's amazing to me how he takes something, <coughs> I see it all the time, I take something for something tragic and turns it into something beautiful. Yeah, that is actually what he does. He doesn't stop us from experiencing the pain. He redeems the pain. He says, in the midst of that, watch what I'm going to do with it. Instead of it being wasted pain, it's going to be productive pain. If it were me, I would choose different ways because I'm just a softy. But I will trust his, his goodness and his sovereignty. A couple other questions real fast, and then I want to keep going. Yeah. I was just going to say, for me, it just feels like most of my life, I've always been at different stages with different events. And so it's constantly yeah. felt like yep. this one 
to another, to another. What I'm learning now about myself is, in, through all that, and always having different griefs, is um, I've turned into that victim stance. Yeah. So when you have one grief after another, after one tragedy, after another, after another, and you never really get out of this cycle. It just says, you know, for this tragedy I'm in stage two, for this one I'm in stage three, and this one I'm just in the nutso stage, and, and it's just so, how do you ever you become a permanent victim? That has the potential of happening, and that's when sometimes you have to... I counted so many tragedies. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question, and that does happen to some people. Um, and that's when you have to, I call it going to the least common denominator. That's when you don't try to thrive in life. You try to survive and you try to find any sort of stability in any way possible so you can get one foot on some solid ground in some way. And then that one solid foot makes it possible to navigate all these other things until eventually you can get two feet on the ground and then you are just completely redefined because the season of your life has been so just upheavaled and you are no longer the same person that you were coming into it. And so you let yourself be changed by it and you don't, you're not worried about, again, becoming the best human being possible. You're worried about just getting up and breathing in the morning and you can survive that. You can move through that. So that's a fast answer to a bigger, bigger question. Um, you start to experience positive emotions. You saw that. You start to perceive your life in a more positive light. This is the next stage where you're restructuring. You actually get to see your life in a little bit more positive way. This stage lasts for months, sometimes even for years, where you're just slowly crawling out. You're slowly starting to make those changes. But the reality is there's bouts of grief and sadness that are going to persist probably for the rest of your life. I can remember as, a, as a, about an eight or nine year old, we went camping and we brought um, a friend of ours, actually a friend of my mom's, um, who had been divorced. And while we were camping, um, this lady just disappears for half the day. And I asked my mom, hey, where'd she go? And my mom kind of hummed and hawed around it for a while until she finally said, today is the anniversary uh, is her wedding anniversary, and she went off by herself to cry. Oh, that makes sense. And probably on that day, for years and years and years, if not for the rest of her life, she's going to just feel moments of sadness and grief over that thing because that's been part of her story, and that's okay. That's how it's supposed to happen. You're, but you don't get stuck in it. You just have seasons, little moments of it. The moving on stage, that's a kind of a misnomer because I don't think you ever truly move on, but it is the um, just progressing forward in some of this. Your great hurt will not be forgotten. It just recedes in the background of your life. You don't disappear. You don't forget it, but you don't let it continue to shape you. You don't let it define you. It's now kind of just on the background. Other more immediate demands start to take precedence. You actually look forward to your son's soccer game. You look forward to the company picnic. You look forward to going and seeing the latest movie that's out. And you let go of your need for the loved one. Again, whether that's loss of through death or betrayal or whatever, you realize that you don't need them. By the way, that's the best kind of relationship. 
You're not in a relationship because I need the other person to be whole. If they go away again, I'm somehow stuck or trapped or handicapped in some way. I choose to be in relationship with this person, and they choose to be in relationship with me, but I don't need them. I love my wife. Again, I think, I think you probably got an idea of that. I'll even make it more accurate. I love my daughter. I love my daughter with all of my heart. And if she were to pass away, I would be a wreck. I would be a mess. But if I lost you, kiddo, I would still go on. And, and I don't need you. She's shaking her head no. <laughs> this might bite me in the butt later on tonight. I should rethink this. I will heal just like you will heal when I die. And you will be able to function and you will move on because you like me, you want me, but you won't need me forever. I've done a good job parenting you and you can be on your own. One of the major benefits of grief, it gives you a new appreciation for the preciousness of life and the greater ability to live in the moment. This is one of the things that constantly hit me over and over and over again. People who have experienced significant loss tend to be deeper. They t you can walk into a room, and when you're having a hard time, they look at you, and they look at you in just that right way that says, I get it. You're okay. I still accept you. And you can just go, oh, fine, yes. They understand. By the way, it's usually the people who haven't experienced some sort of profound loss or have have not moved through it in a healthy way, which are putting those unhealthy, unrealistic expectations on you. You've got to get over it. You've got to get better. Suck it up, Nancy. Come on, let's move on. All those things. They, 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 they tend to be the discompassionate, the unempathetic. I don't have quite as much patience for them as I probably should. They kind of bug me sometimes. And again, keep saying this, but you've come to accept a new normal you're now a single person. You're now a single parent. You're now a widower. You're now a widow. All right, things that hinder the grieving process. There are some things that you can do that will kind of make this harder. Uh, we're going to burn through these really quickly because we touched on them already. Not staying in the hospital bed. Um, that's the phrase I use because I talk about the metaphor of the gal who um, went to the Boston Marathon, trained for three years, gets hit, by, gets hit by a bus, and so she's sitting there with a busted femur and a punctured lung as she watches the start of the marathon start the next day on the TV, and she's going, I have been training for this for three years, and I am not going to be robbed of this. And so she hops up out of bed, even though she's got metal bars sticking out of her legs and screws, and she says, I'm going to run that thing because I am trained and I'm able to do it. And how far is she going to get? Back to that flopping arm thing again. She's not going to be moving very far. Not staying in the hospital bed, pushing yourself too far too fast. Burying the pain. Burying. Burying. Say that word. Burying. 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 To dig a hole and put it under. That's the word. Burying the pain. 
You've lost somebody. How you doing? Typical answer is fine. No, 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 really, how you doing? Really, I'm fine. Maybe. Um, demanding that things be different. This is the, I lost control and I hate the fact that I lost control and I want control back. And so somebody owes me something somewhere. Where do I go to collect? Damn it. How come? How come? How come? How come? In fact, that's the next one, I think. Yep, focusing too much on the why. Why did this happen? How come this happened? Why did this happen? I need an answer, and I need an answer now. Because if I can have some sort of explanation, cognitive understanding, if I can have a rational, logical definition of why this happened, I won't hurt anymore. Is that how it works? I can explain tornadoes. Okay, we got a low-pressure system with some sort of wind thing going on and blah de blah de blah I can't explain it, but somebody smarter than me can explain tornadoes, and this is why your house blew up. Does that make the fact that you feel better? No. That's like customer service, by the way. Have we had a recent experience that we need to process? No, I just used to work at customer service. That's right. That's right. For all of you in customer service, we will take a moment of silence. Be nice to customer service people. Yeah. Focusing too much on the why. There is no answer, typically. I mean, yeah, you can explain it. The guy had too much to drink, got in the car, drove down the road, ran into my wife. That's an explanation. Why did it happen to you? Again, how do people answer that? Because I wasn't good enough, because God's mad at me, because he's a jerk, because <coughs> we, need, we want the wise, because we think it's going to give us some sort of comfort, and it, and it does not do that. So that will hinder the grieving process. Keeping your thoughts and feelings to yourself only. That's, again, that isolation thing, which will tend to make it harder rather than helpful. And then believing that this, that you will feel this bad for the rest of your life. That's the loss of hope. That's the belief that what I'm sitting in right now will never change. And so, why even try? I love, I love the concept of seasons. This just keeps hitting more and more as I do some of my work with my clients and in my own world. There are some people who genuinely believe that when winter comes in a few months from now, it will never, ever, ever, ever become spring or summer again. And it's going to be cold for the rest of their life. It's usually called seasonal affect disorder, okay? The sun goes away and you melt down. My wife has it, okay? It's just like... I'm never going to feel better ever again. And, and, and that feels real, but it's not true. So when you can actually trust and believe it's cold, it's dark, I can't go out and do the things that I want to do, but that's okay because I've been prepared for it. And so what I've done now is I've got a really good coat and I put studs on the top of the car and I have enough firewood to keep me through the whole season. And I got a cabinet full of hot chocolate and a stack of really good books and marshmallows. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> yes, yes. My mind goes the opposite way. Okay. God, I wish I was cold. Yeah. When we prepare for it, it doesn't freak us out. And so we just go, we can move through the season and we can actually find out what are the value, what are the actually good parts of this season. I'm not going to rush through it. Because there is something about a really good day when you hear the patter, patter, patter of rain outside and you don't have to go to work or you don't have to do something and there's just the right song on the radio in just the right way and it's just the right temperature inside because you have your good, really good sweater and you have the cat that showed up that's adopted your family and decided not to leave within the last two weeks. We had one show up and he's snuggled in and purring away and it's like, this is a good moment. I'm not going to rush through this. I'm not going to miss it. Huh. How about that? In January, there's a good moment. I didn't even know that could happen. Believing that religious faith will lessen the impact of your loss. This is a thing that can actually, um, again, help you not move through the grieving process in a healthy way. Now, here's what we mean by this. Religious faith does not grant us immunity from loss. Believers, non-believers, faithful, unfaithful, all experience loss because we all live in a fallen world. It is part of this world. We are not excused from it. Religious faith cannot give us, our, give us back our loved ones or relationships. It doesn't happen that way. It'd be nice but it doesn't happen that way. And religious faith does not give us a shortcut through grief. Christians do not grieve shorter. Sometimes they grieve longer. Religious faith isn't a guarantee that you're going to move through this differently. Here's some things that help the grieving process. Connection. One word. We are built for relationship when we stay in relationship, when we connect, when we let ourselves be seen, when we are known, when we are embraced. That helps. Good self-care. Again, during some of those early stages, this is pretty hard, but it is still getting a haircut, and it is still having good healthy boundaries with people who may not be healthy in your life and it is going to work and still paying your bills and doing your taxes and, and you might have a couple extra packages of chocolate cookies in the cabinet. That's good self-care. Movement, by the way. Did they, there's all sorts of fantastic studies right now that um, medication for depression works, works, this, works this good exercise for depression works about the exact same. If you combine the both, you got the winning, got kind of the winning mixture there. Movement, that's good self-care. Breathing, yoga, running, stretching, rock climbing, all those. Physical activity. And then you plan for grief triggers. You have those things in your life that are just going to hurt you a little bit uniquely that it will not hurt anybody else. It's the certain song on the radio that you hear. It's a certain smell. It's the certain meal that you might run into. It's the certain date. It's the certain place. It's the whatever, whatever, whatever. When you just expect those, when you know that those are going to be there, 
you are prepared for it rather than getting surprised by it. And then people won't understand because the situation isn't triggering them. That's that gracious attitude towards others because when you're going, I'm hurting, I'm frustrated, I'm I'm sad right now, and people are looking at you like, what is wrong with you? You can go, I know you don't understand, it's me. And this is where the ability to internally validate because people are going to look at you and go, "You're you're not responding right. We don't approve of your behavior. And you get to go, that's okay. I approve of my behavior because I know what it's about. And I don't have to prove it to you. So you internally validate. Real fast and then we'll let you go. There are special grieving situations. Okay, We've talked a lot about grief and that's often uh, encapsulated in the concept of death and dying and all those things. But something like divorce. Divorce is a profoundly... Um, heart-wrenching experience and it actually has been shown um, to be almost more painful than death because when you lose someone to death, you don't expect to see them in Fred Myers. You just know they're not going to show up. You're not going to get a call from them. You're not going to deal with some sort of legal thing five years from now because you have some sort of parenting dilemma as you're kind of co-parent with them. You're You're constantly reminded of the loss. You're constantly reminded of the betrayal. You're constantly reminded of the pain of that situation. So divorce comes with its own set of grieving, and sometimes it's actually a longer process because you keep constantly getting triggered and triggered and triggered. Um, Sexual abuse, and I very intentionally include the first word here, There's all sorts of abuse. There's verbal abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. But sexual abuse actually takes some things that those other areas don't. If you're a child and you are introduced to sexual experiences before you are ready and before it's appropriate, it turns things on in your body and in your head, and you have a loss of innocence. It's actually a way of removing your childhood from you because it's like, we're going to help you skip over from five to to 15, and you don't really get to experience those 10 years in between because now you are triggered in some sort of way, and that dramatically shapes your view of God, dramatically shapes your view of relationships, of touch, of intimacy, of all sorts of things. And so there is profound, profound amounts of loss and grief around this one area, and there's unique ways of moving through that grieving process as well. Loss of innocence. Um, This is different than the sexual abuse, even though that's included in that. Um, The loss of innocence. Think of 911. Think of 911. You have an entire nation that all of a sudden, when you hear an airplane flying over, it's like, what does that mean now? You just don't get to innocently listen to airplanes fly over. You don't get to innocently listen to the news anymore. There's some sort of, my world has been changed by this. And for individuals who have experienced some sort of significant crisis or tragedy, I have a friend who was um, working in Macy's, what was it, two years ago now, um, for the shooting. She watched the gunman run past her. That sticks with you. So that now, when she's working just doing her normal job, she hears, you know, some sort of, what does she think instantly of? She just, her mind goes through that quickly. 
So she no longer has innocence, so she's working her job. She gets triggered over and over and over again. So there's this loss of purity, this loss of innocence to just normal life overall. That has its own grieving process as well, or, or unique characteristics to some of it. So those last three, char- those last three categories there, actual grief because of loss or death or betrayal or anything, again, broad, broad, broad categories. Lots of stuff to go through here. Questions or thoughts real fast before I let you go? Yes. Yes. Is what? Comparing. Comparing. Yes, we touched on that last time. Yeah. When, uh, and, and I mean, comparing your grief, you individually have lost the same person yeah. as a group, but yeah. that person meant something to yes. every one of you. So those, the way you grieve will, grieve will be different from others. Right. Everybody's raw. Yeah. So you got your rawness bouncing off of my rawness, bouncing off of their rawness, and 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 it's just this, this yeah, it's like mess. You don't understand my pain. It's like cacophony is what you used. Yeah. The word you used, man. Yeah. So comparing. Yes. Yeah. What do you think of that? Um, what do I think of that? That's a kind of a tricky question. Um, again, for some people, it, always it's a it's it's a case dependent kind of thing because I can think of a time when the person was dying a long time of cancer. They've been on life support for a long time. You've already grieved two years earlier because that person's been gone. Now they just finally, they stop breathing. So that you're actually mostly through the grief process and you can do that. Other times it's completely reactionary and probably the worst thing you can do because what you need in the grief process in, the, in, the, in regards to a, a companion or a spouse is not what you need long-term typically. And so it can be very problematic. But again, it's, it's usually a, a case-by-case kind of thing. Um, but general rule of thumb is in the midst of the grief process, it's really, really, really smart not to make major life decisions, okay? Typically not moving, not selling houses, not in making major financial decisions or major relational, relational decisions. It's tendle to, because you're not in a full balanced state yet. So don't make big decisions. Yes? How do you grieve as a couple and alone? Or as a family? family That's a great question. Um, 
the first thing that comes to my mind is grief will magnify whatever's there as a family already. So if you have a family that is already loving, compassionate, understanding, patient, empathetic, then grieving means you're able to move through those things and it will amplify that. So you, you, even though you're raw and messy and stuff, you still have the foundational laid that's really, really good. If the family is not those things. They tend to be backbiting, they tend to be unsafe, they tend to be teasing and all those things. Then when people are hurt, those things get amplified as well and you can actually cause a lot of damage, a lot of hurt. Um, and, and as a family... Let's say you have kids that are grieving. Yeah. It's actually a very specific question that I haven't, I haven't looked at the specific things. I can go off the top of my head. But I, instead of doing that, I'd probably want to think about it a little bit more and maybe tag it next week. Would that be okay? Yeah, there's, I mean, I can think of three or four things, but I want to kind of formulate it a little bit better. Yeah, I'll give you one. I, okay, it's just real important to do one. Hi. Um, parents have power, children do not. Children have to tolerate bad situations, painful situations, and just endure whatever's put in front of them. Parents, adults, typically have the ability to choose what they want. So if, the, if an adult isn't feeling good, they can go do something, they can take care of themselves, and a child cannot. So when a family is grieving, when a child is hurting, and the parents are hurting, it actually is it is important for the parents to still be able to recognize the needs of the child and to say, I'm going to equip the children and care for them even a little bit more, even if my tank is empty, even if I have nothing to give at the moment. And that's where you might need to pull in other family members. You might need to pull in some sort of people to help out. Um, the Dougie Center, familiar with the Dougie Center in town here? Superb organization for children and grieving. That's just what they do all day long. Um, and, and when you have, again, my friend who lost her husband to suicide, that two kids and a, and a wife, Dougie Center came right along there. And so they actually have a policy where the whole family comes in, but then they separate them out and the kids go off and they sit with other grieving kids. But mom's cared for and taken care of in that way. But I have a bias or preference towards children because they, they can't take they don't have power over their world, so we need to accommodate. That's our job as a parent is to keep their world as safe and, e and equipped as possible. So as a parent who is grieving, you still have to be a parent. Does that make sense? And care for the needs of your kids. Do that with other things wrapped around you to make it easier. And survive. Don't thrive. Just survive. Yes? as a kid where my mom went through a period of grief yeah. and it didn't mean the same thing to me. I was very young. I didn't yeah. understand it and yeah. we kind of got um, my grandparents helped out a lot in that time so we, I felt as a kid that I was like shipped off to my grandparents yeah. and that um, that really led into like a period of abandonment yeah. and, abandoned. and now growing up I, I realized like my mom needed to take some time Yeah. But I still can't get over those things. And so, how, as a parent, can you um, have that alone time and grieve in a healthy way yeah. and still be a parent? Like, how do you 
What a good question. Gosh, I should have ended earlier so we could just talk a lot more. I'm sorry for the time here, guys. Um, again, primary answer is kids are smarter than we give them credit for. I think if we can, I mean, five-year-olds are incredibly perceptive. I've had clients who, as adults, they're going, I was five years old, and I knew something was just messed up. This wasn't right. Validate with that within kids. And so as a parent, even again, appropriately so, you don't dump the whole story on them. You don't load inappropriate emotional stuff on them. But you can go, this is a hard time for me right now. I am... I am hurting, I am, and, I, and I, I need some extra help. I love you with all of my heart, but I'm going to take a little bit of time for me, and I will be back. I'm going to be back for you. We're not going anywhere. I'm going to go hurt over here for a while. I'm going to go cry. I'm going to go be sad for a while. Grandma and Grandpa are going to take care of you, and then when we come back, I'm going to be so glad to see you. So glad to see you. And kids, I think, can put those two and two together and graciously give that to a parent. Again, appropriately so. They, kids are smart. They're really smart. Communication. Yeah. Someone should do a series on communication. That'd be a good one. All right, guys. I'm going to honor your time and let you get out of here. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.